Can spiritual gifts be abused? Is it possible for Christians to take these divinely inspired abilities that God has given us and to twist them and abuse them? This is the question we'll be wrestling with as we study 1 Corinthians together. Over the last few weeks, I've been reading through a blog series on the Gospel Coalition's website entitled Expressive Individualism. The series written in 2018 by Trevin Wax outlines how expressive or what expressive individualism is and how it's taken over the Western church in America. In it, he describes this ideology this way. The key here is that the purpose of life is to find one's deepest self and then express that to the world, forging that identity in ways that counter whatever family, friends, political affiliations, previous generations, or religious authorities might say. Include some of the identifying markers of this ideology. Seeing the highest moral good as individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, and self-expression, and seeking to reshape or destroy anything that restricts that. Viewing large-scale structures and institutions with suspicion at best and as evil at worst. And rejecting any form of external authority to promote personal authenticity. Catchphrases include things like, you be you, be true to yourself, follow your heart and find yourself, and any number of other things you might find in children's movies these days. And as I read this, I know many of us agree that what, this is what we see in the world. And yet, I would argue that this kind of thinking is alive and well in the church as well. How do you conceive of the church of Jesus Christ? Is it a place where God's people gather to glorify God and be sanctified? Or is it chiefly about your personal needs to be spiritually encouraged? Is it a place where God's word is clearly and faithfully taught and error is corrected? Or is it a vendor of ecstatic spiritual experiences? Is the church a place where believers lovingly sacrifice their desires for those who don't yet know Christ? Or is it a club of people, each seeking to maximize his or her full spiritual potential? How do you conceive of the church of Jesus Christ? See, I actually believe that expressive individualism is alive and well in the church. It is entirely possible to enter our building every Sunday morning and spend the whole time worshiping at the altar of me. But it may be encouraging to hear that this ideology was also present in the church in Corinth. And Paul writes to them because it had revealed itself in their worship services and their exercise of their spiritual gifts. It's a longer text. We're going to be covering 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 1 through 25, so I'm going to read it as we progress through the text rather than reading the whole thing up front. But would you pray with me, and then we'll dive into 1 Corinthians 14. Father, we have expressed it with our lips that all praise and all glory is yours, that you deserve our worship. And yet we also confess or confess that too often we come to a worship service like this focused on ourselves. And Lord, we pray that as we study your word, that as we read from 1 Corinthians 14, that your spirit would convict us, that you would direct our focus and attention off of ourselves and onto you, 
and that you would cause an overflow of that love that we have from you to be spilled out onto those around us as well. Father, make us a people that our deeds do outrun our words. Help that to be true of us as we study your word together this morning. Guide and direct our conversations. Speak through me and work in the lives and hearts and minds of those that are here. In Christ's name, amen. Now you'll recall that we're just at the beginning of the end of Paul's critique of the church's disunity in their gatherings when they come together in chapters 11 through 14. And as Jennifer put it in our midweek podcast this week, we're now on the back half of Paul's spiritual gifts sandwich. Having begun the discussion on spiritual gifts in chapter 12, shifted directions to focus on the motivation being love in chapter 13, Paul now comes back to his discussion on spiritual gifts here in chapter 14. And in this text, Paul gives three reasons that he prefers the Corinthians would focus on prophecy rather than tongues. Reason number one, Paul encourages prophecy over tongues because it has a better motivation. It has a better motivation. Look at verse one, and we're going to see that in this first section here. Paul commands, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Paul issues this command, and this command should sound familiar to us, pursue love and desire the spiritual gifts. It's the same two priorities that he ended chapter 12 with. Flip back to one page to the left in your Bibles to the end of chapter 12. This should sound familiar. Verse 31 of chapter 12, he ended this discussion as he moved on to love and he said, but earnestly desire the higher gifts and I will show you a still more excellent way. He said, pursue gifts, but also be motivated by love. That's what chapter 13 was about. And this desiring of the spiritual gifts is what chapter 12 is about and what he comes back to in chapter 14. Having addressed love, Paul shifts back to spiritual gifts, but he adds this interesting caveat. Did you add, or did you see it at the end of verse 1? Especially that you may prophesy. Paul emphasized prophecy to this church that was infatuated with gifts and tongues in particular. And he explains why in the following verse. He leads off with four in verse two. Look at this. He compares tongues and gifts, and he says, For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Now, as we move into this section, what we have to do is we have to pause and we have to spend a little bit of time on definitions. You'll recall from a couple of weeks ago that I talked about the definitions for tongues and the definition for prophecy. I want to come back to those definitions because as we're walking through this, you have to keep these in mind. Tongues we defined as the divine ability to speak spiritual truths in languages never learned. We saw this in Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. We see it in other places throughout Acts, and we'll talk about that later. Now, that miraculous gift of God giving the ability to speak truth and revelation in a language not yet learned must be distinguished from what I think he calls here a tongue. You'll note plural, tongues, and you'll note a tongue, singular. There's an important distinction that I think Paul is making here. When he talks of tongues, he's talking of the appropriate miraculous manifestation of the Spirit to proclaim God's word in languages never known. A tongue, however, I think he has in mind the sort of common practice in Roman culture of speaking in kind of inarticulate, strange ways to perform some sort of ecstatic spiritual ritual. It would have been very common in the mysticism of the day, and so he says, a tongue versus tongues. Note when you see singular versus plural as we walk through this. But secondly, we have to define prophecy here. Prophecy is the divine enablement to proclaim God's truth with power and clarity and timeliness. 
He's going to encourage them to prophesy, so we have to understand what he has in mind here. Now, Paul then moves forward in these verses, and he makes some distinctions. He distinguishes tongues, or a tongue, from prophecy. First, he distinguishes a unique orientation of the gift. Did you pick up on that in 2 and 3? Look at this. He says, For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. One who understands him, or but no one understands him, for he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. He notices a difference in orientation. He said prophecy is oriented toward the people. It's oriented toward the body. It's toward uplifting them. The orientation of a tongue instead is toward, and this is an interesting phrase, but to God. Now, there's no way to capitalize or not capitalize the Greek. So there's a little bit of a confusion here about are we talking God the God or are we talking generically kind of this mysticism of God's? I prefer the latter translation. I prefer that what he has in mind here is he's this sort of inarticulate speech that's oriented in the same way that the Roman practice would have been of the day of kind of generically two gods. But either way, he's saying there's an orientation that's different in prophecy. Your eyes should be focused on the body. It should be focused on other people. But as a result of that difference in orientation, there's also a difference in edification. Look at this in verse 4. The one who speaks in a tongue, notice the singular, builds up himself. But even more, or but, excuse me, speaks in tongues, but even more to prophesy, the one who, wait, I'm reading verse 5. Verse 4 is where we're at, in case I've really confused you at this point. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. He says there is an edification potential from this sort of a spiritual practice, maybe, in private, on your own, And I think that's kind of just a concession Paul is making. I don't think he's advocating for that sort of activity. He's just saying, maybe there's something valuable there. But instead, the one who prophesies builds up the church. He says prophecy is oriented toward the church because prophecy edifies and encourages the body of Christ. A difference in orientation because there's a difference in edification. And all of this could result in the Corinthians easily misunderstanding what Paul is saying and thinking he's trying to de-emphasize the legitimate use of the gifts of tongues. So Paul clarifies. Look at his clarification in verse 5. He says, Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. It's interesting to note here, again, Paul is saying your practice is really screwed up. Your focus is in the wrong place. In fact, I wish that you would all speak in tongues. Now, again, Paul here is rhetorical. This is a rhetorical device. I don't think he's commanding everyone in the church to speak in tongues because that would contradict exactly what he said in chapter 12, that different gifts have been given for different purposes. But he's saying he desires that they should desire the gifts. He wants the church to desire the gifts, but he wants them to stop focusing their attention on themselves. He says, and so therefore, prophecy is greater. Now, I don't think what he's saying is prophecy is greater essentially, as if there's one ultimate gift that all of us should aspire to, and that gift is prophecy. Because that would contradict chapter 12. If all of us aspired to the gift of prophecy and had the ability, all of us would be eyes, and where would be the sense of hearing? Remember that illustration from chapter 12? If all of us had one gift, there wouldn't be other gifts at play. And so I think what he's saying is there's a functionality, there's an edification that comes from this sort of exercise of a gift. 
And therefore, then, tongues, this exercise is lesser. We'll understand a little bit more what that means as we talk about it here in the next section. Though he adds an interesting caveat here. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets. Unless someone interprets. Now, why in the world would Paul add that caveat? Because if somebody interprets, then the body can be built up. He said, tongues works, tongues is effective only if somebody understands it. Put that as a pin, we're going to come back to that idea. His point is that the church is built up. That's how he ends this section, so that the church may be built up. Now, we asked the question originally, is it possible to abuse your spiritual gifts in the church? I think what Paul is saying here in this section is we abuse our spiritual gifts when our encouragement supersedes the church's edification. When our practice, what we find most edifying and most uplifting is more important than what is good for the church at large. In the church, corporate edification is preferable to individual encouragement. He's saying some of you are practicing this endeavor and maybe you're being uplifted, but nobody else in the church can understand a word that you're saying. Nobody else in the church is encouraged by it. You're creating this tiered system of better Christians and worse Christians. You're causing problems in the church. Now, how does this manifest in our culture, in our church today? I think it is very easy with this sort of expressive individualism that I'm talked about, I've talked about, to see the church as a spiritual needs vending machine. I go to the church when I have a spiritual need, I put in my coin, and I get back whatever fills my cup, if you will. And so I just approach the church like, a consu- like something to be consumed. The church is a, what's the right word, a, a product to be consumed. The people are a product to be consumed because my needs trump everyone else's. These sort of ideas are antithetical to what the church fundamentally is. The church is a people of God, mutually encouraging, focused on Christ, The church is not a spiritual vending machine. Think about the ways we refer to the church. We talk about church shopping, and we participate in church hopping, looking for the right spiritual fix that will meet the need we feel. Paul says, the corporate edification is more important than your personal preference and your personal encouragement. Our priorities as a church must be what is glorifying to Christ, what is good for the church, what is good for a ministry, and then what is good for the individual. We must operate with that sort of a mindset in mind. We must make decisions with the whole nature of the church at the heart of what we're doing. But in addition to a better motivation, Paul also encourages prophecy over tongues here because it has a greater comprehension. Look at verse 6. Paul gets to the heart of the message by reminding them of his love and affection for them. He says, now brothers, now brothers. He's about to say something really hard to this church, and he reminds them that he's saying this in love. He cares for these people. He cares for their spiritual health. And he says, now brothers, your spiritual gifts should be exercised in two ways. First, coherently. Gifts must be exercised coherently. Paul begins with this hypothetical question. Look at verse 6. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless 
I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching. This kind of seems to go without saying, doesn't it? He's like, what benefit is to you if I come to you as a church and I speak in tongues and none of you can understand what I'm saying? Like if I were to stand up here and I were to speak Vietnamese, how many of you would be encouraged by what I had to say? Actually, yes, that's right. That's right. One person. Okay? One person. That's his point. He's like, if I come up here and I speak in a language that none of you understand, how are you going to be encouraged by it? How does that help you? Without revelation, without knowledge, without prophecy, without teaching, and I think he's using these basically synonymously, nothing of value is going to happen. You're thrilled with your ecstatic experiences, and everyone's doing these amazing things in your church. Remember, the church thought they were pretty impressive. He says, nobody's being encouraged by it, because nobody can even understand it. To, move, or to prove his point, he gives us two illustrations in verse 7 and 8. He first says, If even lifeless instruments, such as a flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? That if I were to stand up here and try to play Dan's guitar... I know nothing about how to play the guitar, okay? Would anybody be able to recognize the tune I was playing? Absolutely not. I assure you, absolutely not. It's like a musical instrument that no notes get played. What's the value? You can't even recognize the tune. Or it's like a battle bugle, if you will, and this is not to be confused with the chips, so don't, don't think that direction. He's got something else in mind here, okay? He said, or... Excuse me, verse 8, and if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, how will it get ready, or how will get ready, who will get ready for battle? Can't read this morning. So this is the way it used to work in battles, okay? We didn't all have walkie-talkies like they do today where they could communicate pretty quickly. So what would happen is the entire army would march into battle, but you had to have somebody commanding what was going to happen. And so there'd be a bugler who would play a note, and that note would indicate, okay, we're now advancing, or we're now retreating, or we're changing our formation, or we're going to do something. And what he's saying is here, if the bugle plays, and it doesn't give any distinct sound, how will the army know how they're supposed to march? He's saying an indistinct sound communicates nothing. Just speaking sounds communicates nothing if no one can understand what you're talking about. How can you upbuild the church? How can you edify the body if they can't understand you? Now he makes two correlations, and he drives it home to the Corinthians here. Each correlation, one in verse 9 and one in verse 12, begins with, so with yourselves. So, so just like this bugle and just like this instrument, this is how it works out for you. First, the negative correlation, confusion. Look at verse 9. So with yourselves. If with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if you do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. It says if you're speaking words that may have a meaning in another language that no one can understand that is here with you, this sort of unintelligible speech results in confusion and alienation. Did you see that? The body will be confused, and actually people in the body will feel alienated from each other. The term that's actually here, this, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker will be a foreigner to me, it's actually barbarian. Like, we will have a huge difference because we can't communicate about anything. Think of Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel, right? How does God drive a wedge between these people who are seeking to reach heaven 
in their rebellion against him, he says, I'm just going to mix up your languages. We'll see how long you get along well that way. He says, that's basically what you're doing here in the church. You're introducing these bizarre foreign languages that nobody can understand, and you're creating divisions. You're alienating people. On the flip side, there's a positive aspiration they should have here. Again, they should seek to edify the church. Look at verse 12. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, and again, he doesn't put that down, strive to excel in building up the church. He says, unintelligible speech results in confusion and alienation. Intelligible speech builds up the church. That should be your goal in your exercise of your spiritual gift to do it intelligently, coherently, in ways that people can understand. Think about the inversion of the Tower of Babel that we see in Acts 2 and Acts 10 and Acts 19, where we see the appropriate spiritual gift of tongues helping people come to a saving knowledge of Christ. It says intelligible speech results in the building up of the church. Our gifts must be exercised coherently in the church. If no one understands what you're talking about, if no one understands what you're doing, you cannot build up the church. But in addition, Paul argues that these spiritual gifts should also be exercised rationally. Rationally, look at verse 13. He begins by saying, therefore. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. And it kind of feels like he's speaking a bit tongue-in-cheek here. No pun intended. One who, oh, there we go. (laughs) There we go. One who speaks in a tongue. Remember, he's back to singular again. One who speaks in this spiritual, angelic language should then pray for interpretation. Should pray for somebody to be able to understand what's being said. For, he gives his explanation, for our minds must be engaged. Look at verse 14 and 15. For if I pray in a tongue, My spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. His principal command is, if you're going to do that, then pray for interpretation so people can understand. We must not eject our minds in the worship of God. He's saying we must engage our minds. Both your spirit and your mind should be engaged in worship. Both your heart and your head should be engaged in the study of God's word. Or as Romans 12 puts it, flip to the left in your Bibles to Romans 12 here real quickly. We're probably familiar with this text, but let me just note real quickly what we see in verse 1 and 2 of Romans chapter 12. Paul writing to the Romans, as he begins his application for them, says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, To present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Okay, so he's talking about spiritual worship. What does it mean to worship in spirit and truth? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. He says the same thing here in 1 Corinthians 14. He says, This practice in this Roman and Greek culture of thinking, I just need some ecstatic experience. I'm just going to let emotions lead the way and jettison my mind at the door. says, that does you no good. You must engage your mind and your heart. You must engage your thoughts and your will, your spirit and your head. And the same is true for other people if they're going to be edified. We must seek to engage other people's minds as well. Look at verse 16 and 17. Otherwise, if you give thanks in your spirit... 
how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not even know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person will not be built up. See what he's saying? Saying you may be having this amazing spiritual experience, but your brother sitting next to you is like, what's going on? What's, what's happening here? How can they affirm what you're saying if they don't even know what you're saying? And as a bit of a, uh, a side note here, something to just consider. It's not presumptive. Or he, he, Paul, Paul here, okay, let me, let me just say this. Here in verse 16, Paul presumes that even the outsider will be saying amen and thanking what's going on in the service. Figure out what I'm saying? Amen means truly. It's interesting to me, I find, that a common preaching practice, a lot of times people will talk about the death of preaching, that what we need now is we don't need someone to preach from the stage, from the platform. We need to have a dialogue. We need to have more like a classroom setting where we can give and take and have a conversation about things. And I go, you know, it's kind of strange because it kind of sounds like there was a little bit of a dialogue going on here in this verse in 1 Corinthians, right? He's presuming that as the preaching, as the prophecy is occurring, people are going, amen. I'm in agreement on that. Just something to consider. Not prescriptive. You could do that. You're allowed to speak and say amen. There we go. Look at that. We can do it. Again, I'm not prescribing anything. He's just presuming that this is happening. But note again the priority here in verse 17. You may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. You may be having a wonderful time, you may be having an ecstatic experience, but the other person is getting nothing out of your incoherent babbling. Paul uses himself as an example here in verse 18 and 19, just in case they're getting confused. He says, I thank God that I speak in tongues, back to plural, more than any of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words in my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Paul says, you think you're so spiritual. Guess what? I have spoken in tongues more than any of you. He's probably referring to Acts 19 and the speaking in tongues that occurred at Ephesus where Paul is writing this letter from. He says, I speak in tongues. I've got nothing against tongues, just for the record. But I prefer what helps others to be built up. I prefer what is going to edify the church. And know what he says, and this is kind of a side note here. He says, nevertheless, in church. Nevertheless, when the church gathers together, in the body of Jesus Christ, prophesy. Prefer that to speaking in tongues. In church, our gifts must be exercised both coherently and rationally. They must be exercised in a way that people can understand, and they must travel through the mind. It's not just an emotional experience, though Paul is not downplaying emotion. He's saying that we abuse our spiritual gifts when our emotional experience supersedes clear, faithful ministry to others. When the emotional experience we're having is more important to us than ministering to those around us. In the church, intelligible ministry is preferable to ecstatic experience. And we have a tendency to amen that, though you didn't, I recognize that. And yet, practically speaking, what do we seek in church? 
What sort of worship concerts do we want to go to? What sort of preaching events do we like to participate in? What sort of things do we tend to seek out? Paul is not saying that emotion is bad, but he's saying to the Corinthian church, stop chasing mountaintop experiences. And we are so guilty of that in our expressive individualistic culture too, where we equate the way we feel with how spiritual we are. We equate the way we feel with how effective ministry was. We equate the way we feel with whether or not the Spirit was active. Paul is saying the Spirit is active through rational, coherent prophecy to the church. He's not saying emotion is bad. And I would actually argue that if you have the right heart as a believer, your emotion of praise and worship to God should follow truth. The two are not mutually exclusive. But to lead with emotion and to substitute truth is an error. This means as a church, we give character preference to charisma. There are speakers that could whip you up and get you really excited about things. I am not one of them. I recognize that. They're out there. You can find them online. We prefer character to charisma. We prefer faithfulness to enthusiasm. Again, enthusiasm is not wrong, but emotion for emotion's sake isn't helping us. We prefer liturgy, if I can say that, to authenticity. And again, I know that's a taboo word. Okay, liturgy just means kind of the order in which you do your service. And the, Paul's actually going to argue next week that we should have order to our worship services. I'm going to let Brad Orta talk about that when he comes in next week. But he's saying, what we say and what we do is more important than just being authentic. And I know that's the catchphrase today. He's saying truth is preferable to emotion. Truth is preferable to motion. In the church, intelligible ministry is preferable to ecstatic experience. And finally, Paul encourages prophecy over tongues because lastly, it has a broader application. Look at verse 20 through 25. Paul again calls them brothers. Look at verse 20. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. He encourages them to mature thinking. He encourages them to engage their minds and grow up in the way they think. He says this negative is this childlike thinking. We talked about that a little bit last week. This naive thinking, this misunderstanding in thinking. Again, children, the encouragement is to grow up in your thinking. It's not demeaning of you. It's just saying there's somewhere you're intending to go. Instead, he says the positive is that we should be infants in evil. We should be naive to evil and sin and mature in our thinking. It is a sad reality that I do believe that in the evangelical church today, there is a plague of professing Christians who know far more about the world than they do about their Bibles. They know far more about their work than they do theology. They know far more about their hobbies than they do the church. And I'm afraid they know far more about sin than they do their Savior. Paul says to this church, be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. And then Paul quotes from Isaiah chapter 28, which feels like kind of an odd thing to do given his argument, and he distinguishes between the audience of these two things. Look at verse 21 and 22. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. 
Even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign for unbelievers, or not for unbelievers, but for believers. And we go, okay, this is kind of strange. What's going on here? Why is Paul quoting from Isaiah 28? Isaiah 28 is a section of scripture who Isaiah the prophet in the Old Testament, he was primarily a prophet to the southern tribes of Judah, but this is an oracle of judgment against the northern tribes of Israel, against Samaria, where he's saying there's going to be a people that speak a different language and they're going to come in and wipe you out. Isaiah is ultimately proved true when in 722 BC the Assyrians come in and wipe out the northern tribes of Israel. And they speak a language that doesn't make any sense to the people of Israel. Here in Isaiah 28, 11 and 12, confusion in language is a sign of God's judgment. Confusion in their language is a sign of God's judgment. And so he carries that through in verse 22 and says this, thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. I think what Paul is doing, why he's calling on Isaiah 28 here, is he's reminding them that tongues is a ministry declaring God's holiness and judgment to unbelievers. Those that are believers already know that. They've already placed their faith in Christ. They already understand that reality. And tongues is for unbelievers, whereas prophecy is for believers. It's for those that need to be built up in their faith, that need to be strengthened in their understanding of the Lord. Why? Because tongues reveal the power and the presence of God to unbelievers. Prophecy builds up the church. You follow with me there? He quotes from Isaiah 28 because tongues, this confusion in language, reveals the power and the presence of God for unbelievers. But prophecy builds up the church of Jesus Christ. And then he notes our motivating force in all of this, our end result that we're seeking in verse 23 through 25. Look at this. He says, If therefore the whole church comes together... And all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are all out of your minds? I love that. There's a little bit of other. This seems like a kind of a joke on Paul's part. But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Paul looks at them and he says, you're so excited about tongues, but if your church gathers together and an unbeliever walks into your church and you're all speaking tongues like you so desire to do, they're going to think you're crazy. They're going to think you've lost your minds because nobody's interpreting what's being said. And it's strange to me that some take a text like this and they make it say that is some incredible spiritual maturity identifier. Say so if an unbeliever walks in, they're going to think you're nuts. And all of us have seen examples of that probably on TV too. As opposed to, if an outsider comes in and you're all prophesying, what will be the result? I love this list. Conviction, accountability, Disclosure, humility, and worship. It says your ecstatic experiences that you're all seeking will just result in an outsider being confused. You should all rather seek rational, coherent, clear ministry to each other. And it's pretty clear from Paul's context which one he prefers here. 
This is not an argument that they should be all aspiring to speak in tongues. He's saying there should be clear ministry so that unbelievers can come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We abuse our spiritual gifts when our personal comfort supersedes clear proclamation of the gospel. Saying, you guys like your little clique. You like what's comfortable. You like these ecstatic experiences, but you are alienating anybody who comes in seeking to know Jesus Christ. In the church, gospel clarity is preferable to insider actualization. And if you went, what? Let me explain what I mean. I don't know how many of you took college classes and had to study Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's a common psychology idea that basically once all the physical and emotional needs of a person have been realized, the pinnacle of their aspirations for their life should be self-actualization. Should be, quote, the achievement of one's full potential through creativity, independence, spontaneity, and a grasp of the real world. That should be the chief aim of mankind, says modern psychology. The achievement of one's full spirit or, spirit or potential, creativity, independence, spontaneity, and a grasp of the real world. And it's easy as the church to subscribe to that. We, intentionally or unintentionally, buy into what I would call insider actualization in the church. This is my definition the achievement of one's full spiritual potential through engagement in services, ministry opportunities, and programs that make me feel comfortable and valued. My highest priority is my feeling of comfort and my edification and my feelings. And we can tend to drift into that, of thinking that the most important thing going on in this service right now is me. And he says to this church, the gospel is being misunderstood because you're so focused on yourselves. The truth of the matter is that the church does not chiefly exist to help you be all you can be. Was that the army motto? Was that the the, the recruiting slogan? Right? That was the army, right? We can tend to think that way. Like the, the task of the church is to come alongside me and help me be all I can be. As a church, this means that we try to intentionally avoid Christianese, if you're familiar with that term. Terms that confuse unbelievers and terms that don't make any sense to unbelievers. I would also say, if if you are the outsider, if you are the unbeliever that Paul is referring to here, verses 24 and 25 are also about you. If you have not come to a saving knowledge and place your faith and hope in Christ alone for your salvation... He's talking about you here in verse 24 and 25. He's saying that the clear proclamation of the gospel should bring conviction, humility, repentance, and ultimately worship of God. If you're an unbeliever and you don't know what we're talking about, if you're not sure why we would sing for 20 minutes on a Sunday morning, if you don't understand that God has a righteous and holy standard, and every one of us has failed to meet that through our sin and through inheriting Adam's sin For ourselves, and that the only way to be redeemed and to have this sort of right relationship with God is to place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then He is talking to you here. This proclamation of the gospel should result in conviction and humility and repentance and ultimately worship. And I would plead with you let it have this effect on your heart. 
Paul's message here is fairly clear to the Corinthians. He says, we abuse spiritual gifts when we make them chiefly about us. In the article I mentioned earlier, he makes this statement. I realize it's a little bit of a long quote, so bear with me. He says, what happens to the church in this environment? It's not that suddenly all the sanctuaries are emptied and the churches get rejected. Instead, the people who continue to attend church do so because they believe the church can help them find and express themselves. Religiosity doesn't disappear. It morphs into something adaptable, something you embrace on your own terms. Faith is no longer focused on reality or something true. It's a therapeutic choice intended to aid you in your pursuit of self-exaltation and self-fulfillment. The churches don't just empty out. They become therapeutic self-actualizers. Paul's key point here in 1 Corinthians 14, I believe, is this. Loving use of our spiritual gifts means expressing them for others rather than ourselves. This church was so focused on their own spiritual gift, they'd forgotten that they'd been given it to help somebody else. Trevin goes on. In the expressivist framework, anything that gets in the way of self-exaltation or self-fulfillment is a problem. This means that any universal or binding ethic, morals or absolutes, truths that are transcendent, in our culture, they fall down before the idol of the mighty me. God may still be present, but me is on the throne. Ask yourselves that question. Who is on the throne of my life? Who is really on the throne of my life? Who is the subject of my worship when I walk into church on a Sunday morning? Is it me or is it God? Let's pray. Father, we confess that this is the natural tendency of the human heart, that we place ourselves on the throne of our lives, that we become all about us and all about realizing our dreams and aspirations and goals. And even we tend to slap a Christianese language on it and say it's about me realizing my full spiritual potential. And Lord, we recognize that your intention is for your sons and daughters to grow up and become spiritually mature. But they do so through focusing their worship and attention on you, and they do so by focusing on others. Father, help us to do that. Help us to not be so self-focused that we lose sight of what you're calling us to as a church. Help us to not be so self-focused that we lose sight of who you are and what you've done for us. And Help us to not be so self-focused that we quit encouraging and building up those around us. Lord, use us in the lives of others because we've fully submitted to you. In Christ's name, amen.